Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, this is season five, episode number seven of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I hope you're well. I hope you're enjoying the easing of the lockdowns and COVID-19 and, of course, enjoying some of the Olympic action as it kicks off in full swing this week. Today's topic is a really important one, mental health. The recent high-profile athletes like Kevin Love, Naomi Osaka, and very recently Simone Biles at the Olympics really highlights the need to talk more about mental health and sport, and not just with athletes, but coaches and staff as well. My guest today is Dr. Drew Ramsey, MD, a psychiatrist, assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, leading proponent of nutritional psychiatry and author of Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Dr. Drew founded the Brain Food Clinic in New York City, offering treatment and consultation for depression, anxiety, and emotional wellness concerns. The clinic incorporates evidence-based nutrition and integrative psychiatry treatments with psychotherapy, coaching, and responsible medication management. Dr. Drew's work and writing have been featured in the Today Show, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Atlantic, Lancet Psychiatry, and NPR. In this episode, Dr. Drew and I will discuss how environment really impacts our mood and, of course, rates of anxiety. Drew will talk about his focus on food categories rather than foods themselves and a couple of the key pillars of his assessments. We'll also dive into the growing trend of low mood and anxiety in younger populations, the pitfalls of when work becomes your identity as you get older in midlife, and of course, reversing the stigma of mental health challenges, as well as some of the motivational interviewing techniques that Dr. Drew uses, how he tries to understand where clients are coming from, and of course, some of the biomarkers, foods, and supplements we can use to support our clients. Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, practitioners, and those looking to make a bigger impact with their athletes and clients. Athlete Evolution is excited to announce a free performance nutrition summit this fall with a special focus on basketball, football, athlete health, and of course, mindset. So head over to athleteevolution.org, that's athleteevolution.org, register there, you'll get all the info, who's speaking, when it drops, all that good stuff. Awesome, let's do this season five, episode number seven with Dr. Drew Ramsey. Enjoy. Dr. Drew, I appreciate you taking the time today. It's great to be here with you, man. Thank you. Well, listen, I think it'd be a great place to start to give uh, viewers and listeners a little whirlwind tour of your background, and then we can you know, dive into this discussion around you know, anxiety and low mood and things that are on the rise in the, in the population these days. That sounds, that sounds great. So, <clears throat> hey, everyone, uh, I'm Drew Ramsey. I used to be a psychiatrist based in New York City, and uh, now I'm based on the internet, um, which has been an adjustment for all of us in mental health. But I'm a mm. psychiatrist, and I'm, and I'm a nutritional psychiatrist, which is kind of a newish thing, although I, I've been at it for a while, which is thinking about mental health uh, in terms of conventionally how we do it. I mean, I'm a general psychiatrist but also in terms of nutrition and, and food and thinking about how food can impact how we uh, treat depression and anxiety particularly. 
Yeah, we were just talking before before we came on here about just how much things have changed in the last few decades around, you know, the the, the application of nutrition or whether it be exercise and you know obviously things lifestyle factors like sleep and how much that science has grown to be able to highlight to us the impacts it has on on mental health and you know if we start this conversation from a real thirty thousand foot view and you know of course environment drives a lot of the behaviors that we have and if we think of our physical environments, our food environment, you know, even our relationships and whatnot, you know, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, in your practice with the, with the patients and clients that you're seeing, how some of those environments are impacting things like rates of, of anxiety and depression as we see those, you know, on the rise? For sure. I think probably everybody listening has some examples of that from their own life as well, of just how during different phases of the pandemic and, and still it's really, you know, ongoing for so many yeah. people that there was more insomnia. Some folks were having a hard time sleeping, a lot of catastrophic worrying, um, a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, especially, you know, uh, when you're in a relationship or have kids uh, or, uh, that, that, you know, you're, you're worrying and thinking about your partner and the risks to you. So I think everybody got a real good dose of challenge to their mental health over the last year in a way that, that really hasn't happened before. Um, it, Specifically, I think you're speaking about you know what we think of you know the fancy word really I guess is the epigenetics for this notion of how do our environments, various environments, affect genetic expression, and we know things like human connection versus isolation. Different sorts of genes get turned on in those environments. For um, we know for, um, that our um, food environment really has so much to do with. If you think about you know, the buzzword in medicine today, right, is inflammation and how mm. inflammation increasingly is getting thought of as and really understanding as causative in some cases of depression and anxiety. But what regulates more inflammation than anything else is going to be diet for sure. And so those those environments um, are one where one one area where we really think about how do we intervene in in mental health. Along with, you know, these other traditional treatments, I, I do lots of psychotherapy, I prescribe medications. I mean, there's lots of other kind of, I would say tools in the toolbox, Yeah, tools in the toolbox, arrows in the quiver, but mm -hmm. it, it's nice that we're seeing more and more of the lifestyle approach being incorporated as we think about mental health. Yeah. And if we use that as a jumping off point, that idea of inflammation, you know, two thirds of the population now are, are overweight or obese. And we live in this in food environment where, you know, calorie dense foods are the norm and you know, you've got to really be swimming upstream to be looking for whole foods and then making some of those choices. And so that terrain, you know, that, that weight gain, that, you know, pre-diabetic or, you know, high glycemia, dyslipidemia seems to be the norm and perpetuating a lot of that inflammation. And so for, for yourself, when you're seeing, you know, clients, is there a certain place that you might start with someone or is it very individual in terms of how much you think that that's impacting um, the mental state? No, it depends a little bit where somebody is in their mental health journey. I mean, some people come to me and, and things are dialed in and they want to just hear some food advice. Other folks really are looking for something like a psychotherapy or to think about some roots of their depression that, you know, no matter how you eat, if you've had a lot of trauma, you're still going to have some work to do and, and things mm -hmm. to sort through. Some folks, you know, eat perfectly well and they still really have significant depression and, and understanding strategies and ways to deal with that, or maybe more of where that's from is important. But from, for most people, I start with an assessment of really two things, like how are you as an eater? 
And what is your motivation, right? Do you look at me like I'm Looney Tunes when I talk about leafy greens or do you like light up and want to talk like kale massage? Do you, when I say, you know, tell me about your fridge and, and people always worry that I'm judging. And I think that's more of diagnosing, which also I think carries judgment with it, but it's more of just like, I'm just trying to figure out sort of where somebody is. And if I hear them talk about, um, I don't know, for example, I have some uh, patients I treat who've never scrambled an egg. Yeah, And, you know, that's really important to know before I start like waxing on about my favorite frittata and how it's <laughs> for so great sure. for their brain health. Kale so, frittata for breakfast. Yeah, it's a great, it's the frittata, the eggy pie is one of the best. There um, you go. So how, what they eat and, and then where their motivation is, is what I'm looking at. And then I'm, I'm establishing really a dietary pattern. One of the things in medicine that we've really tried to move away from, I think, uh, is both shame-based language. But, but also this notion of other singular foods or nutrients running the show. I want to eat you to eat low salt diet. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, okay. Like I want you to eat a high omega-3 fat, high magnesium, high zinc, high B12. Like it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> you know, like focusing on cutting a thing, a few things out. doesn't, I don't think it helps eaters, right? Cause it just sells yeah. processed food. This is no salt. This is no cholesterol. And, and as I look at that dietary pattern, you know, because uh, overall day in, day out, what are the foods that kind of really sustain you? I'm looking for these food categories we use in nutritional psychiatry. And, and I cover them in the in the new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Oh, and at the end of the book, there's a plan that kind of walks through a few of them to really help. Like leafy greens is a good example. When I say leafy greens, most people think salad. But that's like not at all. Iceberg lettuce. I, yeah, <laughs> and it, right, or iceberg lettuce or... Um, you know, or kale, right? Because it's me. And I had a little kale face. So I, where, you know, what I'm thinking leafy greens in my diet this week, I'm thinking pesto. I'm thinking of the soup that I had for lunch that had some chopped up greens in it. I'm thinking the big handfuls of oregano and, and rosemary that I'm pulling out of our, our little greenhouse and just dumping in kind of anything, any veggies yeah. I'm roasting, any pasta. I mean, so uh, really asking people to consider what's your relationship like with that food category. And again, where is your motivation in, in terms of expanding things and being a little creative and then looking for just entry points. So it's not like, wow, you've got to revamp everything, but like, Hey, wow, you haven't eaten any leafy greens in a while, but it sounds like you like them a lot. What are a couple, like when are you headed to the grocery store next? Like, how can we be a little intentional about making little small steps? You're like, wow, you've never thought about your microbiome or eaten fermented foods before. And so, you know, we, we, that's where it's like having people have a good experience and take little steps is really important as opposed to what so often people do is start piling in probiotics and eating all kinds of fiber and getting gassy and <laughs> then saying plants are horrible. I mean, so it's, yeah. it's um, that, that's Started. a little bit, I think, of how I try to approach things, food categories. Yeah. It's terrific. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, the small steps, obviously, and being able to you know, anytime we're trying to change a behavior, having that gap be as small as we can is definitely a, a big help. And, you know, one of the things around anxiety, which really starts to blow me away is even now we see with a lot of our young NBA players, whether they're Canadians or Americans and struggling with things like anxiety or low mood at a really young age, which seems paradoxical because when you think of someone who's been training their whole life, they finally make it to the NBA, they're making all this money. We would think that this is, this is, happiness oh, right this is, this know. is you know those starts. you know these guys better than that that's not what it's like and, and, and <laughs> so mean, you know um, is that something that we're seeing in the you know are you seeing rates of anxiety in, in, in younger populations or you know, we're what? seeing a couple of things i mean first 
I, I guess I was somewhat serious of you work with NBA players. And so you see the inside of it a little behind the scenes where there are those moments. It's amazing, but there's also the pressure. There's also just the incredible toll it takes on their bodies. There's also the fact that you're a commodity and you're treated and traded as an object, which I just, no matter how much your team loves you and your fans love you, that's really hard on the psyche mm-hmm. that, that you're a, you've got a little moment in the sun. Um, and, and it is so hard on these young men and their bodies. I, I, I think we've also had just some wonderful leadership um, from the NBA. Um, certainly Kevin Love started it, but there've been a number of players who are really speaking openly about their mental health and, mm-hmm. and having panic attacks and depression. Um, so it, it's been really great to see that. I, are, your question, are we seeing more? So the rate of, um, I think it was the, suicide, the rate of suicide went down by 6% last year, which I think I wouldn't say it surprised it everyone, but I think there was a big fear there was going to be a huge surge. I'm like one of those people that like, I don't kind of let my breath out in the movie when things look a little better. I like, no, that's like, <laughs> so not to be Wait hysterical about it or yeah. worried. I just, I, I do think that as things ease up a little bit more of the processing of what we've been through, at least for me, what I'm seeing in my patients and myself, just like stuff is bubbling to the surface because it can now and i think kids you know if we're going to talk about folks in their teens and 20s are much more aware about mental health but they're also facing an environment that i'm I'm 47 it's really and i'm really blessed i get to treat a lot of young uh men and women and so i feel when i say like i'm blessed it's like nice to hear about it yeah hear the way that people are changing everything from how folks think about relationships and relationship structure to um the sexuality to gender so there's i think both you know this new pressure in social media and all the bad stuff we hear about but there's also like an opportunity more than there ever has been to be yourself and to have that honored whatever that means to you mm-hmm. um I would say that because there aren't as many guardrails about identity and who we are, there is more of a propensity, I think, for people to struggle with really thinking about this in ways that I think my generation in some ways didn't struggle with as much or didn't have some of those questions. And so it's a challenging time. I think that the rates of depression and anxiety, certainly in some of some of the data have gone up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think certainly when you look at at least prior to this year, what was happening, we were seeing tremendous rises in, um, you know, suicide is sort of the measure that gets talked about and used is, is um, but I think it's important also to just look at straight up rates of depression. So in the U.S. now, um, and I don't think this is bad, I, often the, the statistic gets thrown around and people are like, ooh, it's horrible, but one um, in four women over the age of 60 take an okay. antidepressant medication. And it's an interesting statistic for a few reasons. One is, you know, that often gets like pronounced as like, well, we're overprescribing antidepressants. And I think well, yeah. that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is we uh, culturally promote depression in women over the age of 50. And I think to me, that rings much more true. Of we yeah, just don't- that environment situation, right? Have a, yeah, we just have a hugely misogynistic culture and issue on our hands about that. And so, um, Certainly antidepressants aren't the way to deal with that, but when people have symptoms and, and symptoms of depression that stem from that, I mean, that's one of the reasons they get employed. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, but th- those are some thoughts on the prevalence and incidence of depression and anxiety and what's happening. The modern, sure. br- the modern brain is up against some challenges, I think probably what we both agree on. 
Yeah. And, and circling back to one of your comments around identity, I think one of the things that we get if we stay on this performance side is, you know, a younger athlete who's always been the best at their sport and everyone tells them, you know, you're so talented, you're so gifted and they climb the ranks up and which is tremendous, you know, through high school and college, and they might finally make it to the NBA. And that's actually the first time where they're really facing a challenge where they're at the end of the bench or they're not getting all the attention or they might not make the team. Um, and so that identity being so wrapped up in their, in their, in being the basketball player and being the star, now that might be changed or they might not make the team. Can you talk a little bit about how, you know, that, that, I guess I don't know if it comes back to that fixed versus growth mindsets, but can you explore that a little bit less? I can talk. I mean, I should tell you what it triggers in me is thinking about the challenge for all people where work becomes our identity and particularly for men. Mm -hmm. you take away my patience, my practice, I don't know my, what I get to do. My, my wife will tell you like come Sunday night, sometimes I'm not the best person to be with. And it's not because I dread Monday. It's because I haven't worked in the last couple of days. <laughs> and then like, I'll, I'll see some patients. I'll do some work. So it's like, how are you? It's like, great. Because <laughs> so much of our, our identity is tied up in, in, in what we do. And, 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 and there's some great stuff to that. You know, mm -hmm. being productive and, and having a professional identity. I think that's wonderful, whether it's your basketball player or a, a naturopathic doctor or, you know, it, 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 but what you're speaking about is specifically is people's identity rests in being lauded and whatever mm -hmm. that is, whether you're the best sports or I was talking to somebody uh, earlier today who was like the hardest partier. Yeah. <laughs> and as he like pulled his life into really more serious focus, you know, there are a lot of people who are disappointed in him. Yeah. And, and so um, certainly it's hard to keep perspective and have gratitude in a real way. I think it's where having people work gravi gra their gratitude muscle, not in a superficial way that a lot of us do. Like, you know, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all this. It's like, no, mm. like, be thankful for your big legs and your big feet and your big hands and your muscles. Like, be, <laughs> be thankful for the fact that it's just second nature that you can drop the ball in the bucket. Be thankful that you even have a shot. Um, I think that can help with that. I think understanding when you hit your limit, like if you're in the number 10 man on the team and your job is helping your team practice, basically, I don't know. I played JV basketball. Mm -hmm. I still remember, I still to this day, remember the game that I got pull, pulled into the varsity bench and thrown in yeah. and like scored three buckets unexpectedly mm -hmm. and the look on everyone's face and the feeling of it. So I think no matter where you are on the team, you, you know, you get your moment and working on being prepared for that. At least that's my sense. You work with more of those folks than I do. I've certainly seen a few in my day. And I think the folks who handle that with the most poise don't see that end goal as being number one. They see and focus on the process of being in, uh, in that flow state with the body, with the mind, with the gratitude. I think those are the folks who handle it the best and often end up doing the best. Yeah. I mean, hundred percent. I mean, that's definitely, you know, our mental performance coach, uh, Dr. Peter Jensen always talks about that, you know, that process and, and being in the moment. And I think, you know, in, in past generations, maybe that building up to getting to where you needed to go, there was sort of more, more years built into that and more time, I guess, to build some of those mindset skills. Whereas it feels like today they're, that progression is, is pretty quick and it's, uh, you know, comes you have to be a bit more cognizant, don't they? To, to yeah, be able it, just, it comes at a significant cost we, it, it, that to experience adolescent development in the midst of preparing to play in the NBA, 
it just you know it, it has a cost to it for these um young men and and women um and uh that you know that should just the more that organizations that benefit from those costs the more they can do to support mental health to support mental health services to make mm -hmm. sure that um you know, we all get inspired. I love what, you know, we all love to watch these players, but, but 100%. I think we should all understand that, you know, the costs, we focus so much on everything they get. And I just, I, I hope that they all have access to really great mental health uh, services as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely on the rise. And, you know, if we, if we maybe pivot here and talk about almost the coaching staff, performance staff, or the rest of us in, in, in midlife and how, you know, the, the busyness, the madness, the long working hours or, you know, young kids at home, or even maybe it's caring for older parents. That can have talk about my house tonight. It's <laughs> like, you know, it's going to get me crying here. Doc. Like, like these like, are okay. exactly <laughs> right. These are all things that, you know, from a training, from a performance standpoint, we'd say, well, that athlete's overtraining. So it's normal, like a, a symptom of overtraining is, is lower mood. Um, but in this period of midlife, this life load adds up, right. But we don't really think of it like exercise. We just, you know, and so, and so, you know, I think about it all in the same way, actually, these days. Okay. I have no, that whole work-life separation for me dissolved in the pandemic. Yeah. Already, I'm like, I'm a psychiatrist. So I'm interested in inner world, real talk, how you feel. So um, I, I think getting in that state where we don't think, you know, it's funny, where, where we think about training our bodies and a little bit training our minds, but we, we don't then translate that to where it's most important and powerful. Like for me, it's the discipline to stop working and go help cook dinner not mm. just sit down. Or it's the discipline to really, in those times, engage with my kids, not just be another busy, overworked dad and, and to train in the same way. Like I've been down to myself this weekend of like, the issue is you didn't have a solid schedule last weekend of not to have my kids over schedule, but just in terms of being really intentional about, you know, what honestly is the limited time that people get with family these you know we're coming out of the pandemic so i think it's like that's not probably a very popular thing to say everyone's like ready to go <laughs> so i think that time. a lot of people i spoke with really loved it was like a gift you know as much as they complain about i don't know like being in close proximity with family especially if you if you have kids i mean it's just such a gift to get to spend that much time together because usually the modern world eats that time 100 percent. i think that's what people have definitely noticed with despite that you know, accumulation, but yeah. So um, I keep score. I just, just like reps. And I, I mean, in my own mind, I guess in my own way, I keep score about like the nutrition and the, whether I'm feeding the kids, the brain food or whether I'm, but the, am I walking the talk or not? Mm. I keep score with, um, and I give bonus points when I combine things like today was a good one. I, I, I got a bunch of early work done. I had a gap in my schedule. I went to the barn with my daughter and we got our horses out and rode and did the whole horse thing. And then I raced back here, but it's like a combo of like kid time, athletic yeah. time, and like good daddy drew, like grew my horse, like feel my feelings time. Nice. So that that's a, yeah, but I just, I guess all to encourage, I, I, I think at the heart of what you're saying is how do we manage taking care of ourselves with all of the demands that come in this midlife piece, right? I'm a, yeah, especially as it relates to low mood, because it's, you know, we tend to just put a label on something, right? Like mm -hmm. this person has a mental health condition, or this person has depression. And to your point earlier, all these different inputs that are influencing it, whether it's the inflammatory terrain, yeah. or the lack of social, you know, connection with friends, and, um, you know, lack of sleep, even we know, you know, makes it harder to disengage from negative thoughts, all these types of things. And so, you know, when you're looking at someone who has low mood, you know, 
walk us through that just that complex space of the different you know it, is it just a neurochemical imbalance or are all these inputs having that that impact on it's always on neurochemical like everything that happens to us up there is neurochemical sure. you know sure. i think is it just an imbalance thing certainly some people are more prone to depression or uh, a negative bias for a lot mm. of reasons i think a lot of folks have had things for example like trauma that puts them more prone to both depression, but also makes it harder for the things that insulate us. Like, you know, I, I think about like the landscape of my patients. I mean, I was just thinking like, man, I could just walk through like my low mood this morning. <laughs> you know, I think about the, the places I know where it came from, mm. right? Like I was ready to get back to work. Also, I'm in some transitions. I'm thinking about a move. I'm thinking about a variety of different things. Um, uh, there's, uh, I finished a project. I know that always kind of tweaks my mood, right? So there are all these things yeah. where I'm Thinking, and then I'm thinking about the biology. How was my sleep? My diet was not great over the weekend. So I think in psychiatry, we think you use what's called a biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for the biological piece, right? Is there something going on with me medically that I haven't thought about? I haven't been to the doctor. Probably not, but I'll go check my, you know, my B12, my iron, my thyroid. It's been a year. Mm-hmm. Um, is there something else going on in terms of other symptoms and severity of symptoms where I'll look at the time course? Right. If I'm, if I have a big crying session today, cause I'm upset or sad, like I'm okay with that. Even tomorrow, I'll fine with that. But if I'm crying without a good cause multiple days, a week in a row, to me, that feels a little more biologically driven depression versus there's a really good reason I'm crying every day because I lost somebody to the pandemic or because um, I'm really upset about something or, you know, so there, there's, I think time course symptom severity and then I think probably the mistake people make is they think that treatment equals what's so bad now you need to dot, dot, dot. Oh, it got so yeah. bad. I needed some Zoloft. Oh, it got so bad. I needed therapy. Fine. Oh, it got so bad. I went to see a psychiatrist. I think that, I don't know how to, I'm curious your thoughts on how we change that culture. Cause it's kind of like saying, Oh, I got heart disease, cancer, diabetes. You know, I decided to go to the doctor. <laughs> it, was, it was time. <laughs> it was time. It was time. You know, it's just like, it kept like, we wouldn't do that. We, we expect you to go to the doctor every yeah. year. And there's certain things that you do for your health. And so I, I hope we're seeing a shift in mental health to do more of that, where um, there's a more of a, a sense of prevention and more of a sense of really partnering with people to take care of their mental health. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, for yourself as a psychiatrist, that seems like a real, you know, almost daunting endpoint for a lot of patients or clients, particularly men, let's, let's say, you know, who like, to your point, it's like, they have to get to that level. And then now it's like, now I'm at the psychiatrist versus all those things. Those things that you just described about being aware of like that time course or being aware of the biology or all these things that you're mentioning, which the typical person is obviously unaware of. And then that just, you know, perpetuates itself until they get to that time point where, you know, they might need a psychiatrist, but geez, that would, you know, would have been so useful more towards the beginning of that journey. And so how do we start to normalize that from a medical sense, like in terms of how you think about it, are there ways to integrate some of these things more more easily and take away some of that stigma? Uh, there are a few things we're trying to do. I mean, and, and I hope to be part of the conversation. I mean, I should just say, since I've been in medical school, I've been in therapy and, and working on my own mental health. I mean, I think that's when people think of the example of a mental health patient, you know, um, I think you should, one of the things that struck me in my time in the field is it just looks like everyone else. There's not any, it's not like we know. And, uh, and maybe that's sort of obvious to everyone, but I I do just um, encourage people to speak up about their own mental health. I think that in terms of what we do for men, I think there's a big, uh, a, a big opportunity to really decrease stigma in terms of 
um, not having it be what I always hear of like what brought bring somebody in is like their partner said they should come in or their someone said they were concerned right and that we get away from this notion that you know it's masculine to not get help because that's just garbage that's why 75 percent of uh, suicides in America completed suicides are men they're middle-aged white men primarily um, and so it, and then also there's a statistic that looks around like, oh, men, the rate of depression in men is about half that of women, which I think is total BS as well, because the rate of substance uh, dependence in men, lifetime risk of substance dependence in men is 49%. So one in two wow. men is going to be addicted to something or dependent on something in their lifetime. So, but in terms of awareness and next steps, I think there's just the reality check of where's your mental health? Do you check mm -hmm. in about it? Do you think about it? And some of the tenets of that, as a psychiatrist, think about um, affective stability, like is your mood, like where is your mood? Is it up and like, what's the range of it? How much mm -hmm. does it go up and down? And, and kind of how aware are you of what affects it? Now I'll hit some pretty low moods, but like, I, you know, I, I know what that's about. And I also mm -hmm. kind of know how to get myself out of it um, usually. Um, I think there's also the, one of the big skills is the uh, talking and expressing um, what's going on inside with people. I think there's a lot of hesitancy that people have to do that. And so getting, mm -hmm. getting used to that um, and, and, and working on that with somebody, um, you know, and, and doc, I've heard that just like me, <laughs> I've, I've read as well that depression in men will, you know, we often have this idea of just the lower mood, the sadness, this sort of, um, these types of symptoms when we see you know more things around like that more like anger outbursts or like that kind of yeah, men, men don't know. get men aren't the sad i mean they're definitely you can get them teary like sometimes there are a few <laughs> like the sad more tearful men but it, yeah. usually it's irritable angry shut down i call it defended right where it's just yeah. or men talk about how they go in the bunker okay and yeah. it's like how you doing it's like i'm good like really you seem hostile and angry it's like nope <laughs> like you must be wrong <laughs> and, and i think all men not all men but a lot of men know that right and i wouldn't yeah. say it's just a male thing i think anytime people feel hurt or misunderstood they emotionally shut down i mean i think it's how we make this like oh you know men don't like to talk about their feelings and it's like no i don't think that's I, I treat lots of men i sit for 45 minutes and men just they talk they talk i talk all we talk about is feelings the whole whole day i talk yeah. to men about feelings so yeah, yeah. i don't think it's in any way accurate to say men don't talk about feelings or their brains are wired differently I think that all this is total hogwash okay i think that we have a culture that doesn't promote emotional vulnerability among men mm -hmm. and 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 that sounds like some weird touchy-feely thing as opposed to like I think was actually makes men who sort of get into the stance just probably some of the strongest people around just really an ability to know the self to know others to be connected to be thoughtful helpful and um yeah and really mentally healthy so yeah it's, it's interesting we see a, a shift um kind of parallel this with coaching you know again 20 years ago when i was playing basketball it was a lot of cracking the whip and yelling you know i'm not sure how it was on your jv team but it was a lot of yelling and this is how we motivated and that type of um whereas i'm a that, hoosier so bobby knight is yeah like bobby knight there, there like, if the coach exactly. doesn't hit you with the chair it's like yeah i don't know he doesn't it's like he's not passionate <laughs> exactly and obviously today it's a much different it's it's a bit more tuned in on the emotional side which you know sounds like a, a good thing and um if we circle back to your you know, you mentioned biomarkers previously, are there certain ones, you know, you mentioned things like B12 or iron or thyroid that we're looking at that might be able to, 
to move the needle and, you know, to a certain For degree. Sure. I mean, you know, the first, first step, if you have a depression or severe anxiety, especially if you haven't talked to somebody is to, you know, see your general doc or a general doc or go to a doctor yep. in a box and just make sure that's, I always like this as a first step is like, you don't even talk to a therapist. You can just get basics. And so I check out everybody's thyroid, which is just, we get a TSH basic yep. thyroid for marker um, uh, in terms of telling us whether something's off. Um, vitamin B12 and B9 are just two dietary components that some folks, for example, don't absorb B12 very much. Or as people move towards a plant forward diet, they consume less B12 mm -hmm. and less absorbable forms of zinc and iron. And so checking for an anemia, if people are tired and fatigued or, you know, losing their hair or B12 deficiency. Um, yeah, those are some vitamin D. It's funny. There's not tons of data about vitamin D and mood, even though we also see it, all the studies, like if you give people masses doses of vitamin D, like I'm going to prevent depression this winter. Mm -hmm. It's like none of the studies have been positive in that, but there mm -hmm. is a correlation if people have depression of low vitamin D worsening depression. And so, and I would say, you know, it's a vitamin, like you should have a normal level no matter what, but mm -hmm. I'll check vitamin D. Um, those are some of the main ones. I'll do a few, uh, um, inflammatory markers these days, things like CRP, homocysteine. For a while, I was checking MTHFR genes, but it doesn't really look like that pans out in the data so well currently. So, um, but those are some of the markers that, you know, are part of just a standard. There are a few other things. You should check people for syphilis. There's end-stage syphilis that can cause us not as common as it used to be, but, you mm -hmm. know, just base, basic kind of medical workup for depression. Yeah. Yeah, no, it isn't interesting how even, yeah, you know, like high blood sugars, as you mentioned before, this inflammatory terrain. Oh, hemoglobin A1C, sorry. That would be another one I love to check. Hemoglobin A1C, lipid panel, or yeah. just, again, just to kind of know. And it's interesting how, I mean, obviously we're, you know, docs are seeing so many people who are really unwell. Uh, and so when people have levels that are sort of high normal or hovering, you know, oftentimes it's, it's the wait and observe approach, which is, which is fine. But then it's sort of with the time. Think crunch that works. You think that works? I don't think that's working for well, that, That's what I, I don't uh, think that we, works we for sort anybody. Of, we sort of just, yeah, we're sort of just delaying, you know, um, not one being of able your to take pro action, athletes right? was like, you know, my lipids are off. My sugar's off. Like yeah. I don't feel in good shape for this season. You wouldn't be like, well, give it three we'll months. See what happens. Let's see, you know, good luck. You get super yeah. involved. You'd start trying to motivate them. You'd understand you'd wonder where their motivation is from. So, yeah. And, and to your point, these small changes of just adjusting this or being able to layer things in, which I think is always a big benefit when you're, you know, GP or a doc, if you're going to see somebody regularly. Um, but, but those are, you know, changing people's behaviors is obviously not easy. So any insights on your, on your end of how you help to nudge people in the right direction to start to make some of these behavior you know, changes? It's interesting because I come at this from a therapist standpoint and, mm -hmm. and as a therapist, we're very gentle in that where the idea of people becoming internally motivated because of me or my goals is something we really kind of are against almost. And so I think that with motivation, I, I love the, the motivational interviewing framework of really trying to understand where somebody is. Are they contemplating change or are they like, no, I've not even thought about stopping smoking. And so I, I get to, what I like about that mindset instead of my job is like, I'm a doctor. You've got to stop smoking. Stop it. And they're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm like, good. See you next time. You stop that bad thing. <laughs> yeah. That never really worked for anybody. And it just mm -hmm. turns, you know, healthcare professionals into, I don't know, like hall monitors and instead trying to understand, <laughs> what my job is, 
right? That somebody, it, where they are, they're not even thinking about changing their diet um, or they are, or they're missing skills or they want to, but they don't have time. Or now, you know, we're in a conversation about really your life. And, and I get to be looking for little areas and aspects where maybe um, I can help you with motivation and, and with small steps. You know, it's where with diet, there's so much to do. And I think instead of focusing on like, you should go keto, you should stop eating meat, you should... I like just focusing on these food categories. Like if you're worried about brain health, you should think about seafood. That's mm. like the best source of long chain omega-3 fats. Everybody's worried about whether you should eat too much meat or not, or this much meat. I think the data is all clear. People aren't eating enough seafood. Um, I think the more seafood that we can eat, the more we can focus on protecting our oceans, the better for all of us. And, um, and it just then leads to a question of like, if I were with you, like what, what's your relationship like with seafood? I'd be looking for my favorite fishies, the anchovies and sardines and wild salmon in a can just because it's shelf stable and easy and inexpensive and accessible yeah. to more people. Um, yeah. And, and on that note around, you know, trying to understand people and where they're at this, you know, idea of trying to get a sense of people's values, you know, what are the things that are important to them in their life? And, Oftentimes when we can juxtapose the behaviors that they're doing to, you know, where their values are at can help people start to move in that direction. Is that something that, you know, I, I imagine obviously with your intake techniques is, you know, you're evaluating that, but in terms of some of the techniques you might use with clients or their exercises that you might do or ways that you're evaluating that might help practitioners who are listening in? Yeah, for sure. For practice. So we have a, a clinician training program where I go over some of this in detail and I'll, I'll share it, you know, um, I'll share some of it again. It's going to some details about motivational interviewing techniques and it goes over our brain food evaluation, which is, you know, for walking through somebody's day in, in a life as an eater, mm -hmm. looking at these key food categories, thinking about some of the key nutrients, and then really thinking about how do you partner and form alliance with people? It's where the yeah. food work, because people so often expect to be judged or told like you've got to eat this way or that way that I think folks are really um, uh, welcoming to having more of a partner in this, um, whether it's just, you know, somebody's paying attention and cares to, you can brainstorm with somebody. Like I had some gut issues a couple years ago and so we have a great health coach and therapist in, um, uh, in our clinic, uh, Samantha Elkreef. And, you know, I was just talking with her and just in a couple minutes, and all of a sudden, it was just in my mind that as I felt a little upset, I kind of heard her voice like, hey, don't forget root vegetables and like mm -hmm. keep, you know, hydrating and don't, you know, it sounds like a lot of this is stress around your eating. And can you like de-stress a little bit before and just these little, you know, nothing that was rocket science, but in some ways it was brilliant because it was just with me and it just helps mm -hmm. kind of, um, you know, as, as you see with any coaching or athlete, right, if you have a target. You're working towards something it's concrete and it's clear and as you take a step forward you see yourself get closer that's mm -hmm. hugely motivating for people i think the caveat is with mental health and with food and with overall health sometimes people are a little too short-sighted of like we wanted to eat it and like i'm better now yeah as opposed to you're, you're eating regularly um healthy stuff and over a series of weeks your energy your sleep your focus and your overall perspective is going to improve Hundred percent. I mean, that idea of kind of trusting the process and being able to actually go through that and let it play out is obviously a huge part of it. Um, you know, and 
well, my first question on that is, do you guys, you know, are there some strategies that you guys have or, or ways that you implement it to be able to support that, that trust the process journey? Or is it more around the fact that they, people are coming out and seeking you out. And so they're already you know, somewhat bought into that process to begin with. Well, I think oftentimes our food work is integrated into our overall mental health work. And so we, we, we tend to really try and understand and establish good frames with people of um, how we get to have time and space with them to approach their mental health and, and engage in that process. So usually our, our food work, not always, but usually is in the context of some other work um, and other things that are going on with people. Mm -hmm. I think that in terms of getting people engaged, I, I, you know, my sense is until people are interested, excited, thinking about it, want to talk about it, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do some talking about it, but I think I'm a little sensitive to, I definitely don't want to be a brain food expert selling brain food to people who aren't excited and interested just in the sense of, of, I guess, much my clinical technique of, if you want me to help you heal your depression, you don't want to talk about food. It's like, you know, I don't know. I see my job as helping people heal from depression. And so I, you know, I, yeah. I figure there's an opportunity to talk about sleep, talk about therapy, talk about meds and like, and then I bet over time, somebody's going to be curious what I, what I have to say about food. So, um, but in terms of clinicians incorporating yeah. this type of work, I mean, I think it really starts with getting comfortable talking about food. I think understanding kind of where your lane is, I think because it's mental health, a lot of people in the nutrition world are a little hesitant, yeah. to, you know, because they're going to be treating mental health, even psychologists and social workers who are, you know, really hardcore mental health professionals. I'll hear yeah. them the opposite. Like, am I allowed to talk about food? And I think this is where, you know, professionals need to remember their professionals, Right. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm not a cardiologist, but if you ask me about your heart health, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. I'm not a, um, you know, a primary care doctor, but if your high blood pressure is up or you're having headaches and you haven't checked, I, I'm going to do my job as a doc and, and kind of say a few things. And I think mm -hmm. the same thing comes for sort of both sides of the aisle. I think so many coaches and, and nutritionists and folks in the wellness world end up in some ways having a really heavy caseload of mental health concerns of, I just hear this from a lot of coaches where they're, you know, there's dealing with so much that people yeah. trust them and, and, and it's not, you know, an intimidating doctor's office and you hear a lot. And so one, I just hope everyone hears my support that, you know, in many ways coaches are kind of front line of the mental health system. Um, and so I think one handling that and then having place to kind of process and discharge it is important and just understanding it, it, it is emotional labor and, and takes effort, but also just to, to, you know, not have it come across as you're telling me all this really heavy mental health stuff. And now I'm going to tell you to stop eating cornflakes so mm -hmm. you can fight inflammation, which, you know, I think that's sort of obvious, but it's important to say that it's in a context. I usually put in a context of here are some ways that you're feeling and can I share with you some ideas I have about maybe some things, concrete things that you can do. Mm -hmm. And I'll try and separate or write that out. Like I hear you're having a hard time that like in your case, you know, you know like you're not getting a lot of playing time. You're depressed. You're on the fading part <laughs> of your career. Three or kids at home. I can't sleep at night. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's like, it's so that I'll, up I'll think like what, you know, where can there be some progress, right? Like where like sleep was all, you know, parents, it's something where, you know, how can, that's why I got one of these like rings. I started tracking my sleep. I really like, it's time to make a change. Mm. Um, and then thinking about, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of food in nutritional psychiatry, we just think about food categories. And again, trying to mm. focus on some of those. I'll look at my plate. If I don't see any plants besides like, I don't know, spaghetti. It's like, okay, like I'll add in some plants. I'm looking for rainbows. I'm looking for seafood. Um, so those are, those are some ways that I think, but I get to your point of, 
Yeah, I think the more that you get a conversation going, I just, I, I'm a big believer. I ask people a lot of questions. Yeah. I think part of the luxury of people thinking you're an expert is like, I, I just get to ask people when they're, and, and, and I love hearing the answer. Like, how do you think your food is related to your mental health? Like, I don't really have to sell it because people say, oh, and they tell me. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not, and I said, okay, like, where are some concerns you have? And they yeah. tell me. And it's, nice. it's great. And then we'd say, all right, what are some, usually the, the job is really wonderful too. And say, tell me some solutions. And people tell you, I mean, and it's yeah. one of the, my favorite parts of my job, which I realized early in my career, it's not so much that you have the smart idea. It's that people are really brilliant and you kind of help get them aligned in a way to get that out and have confidence in that. Mm. That they are really clear what they need to do. They're really clear often how to do it. Maybe we can nudge here and there and help with a little technique here or there. But awesome, yeah, that's very well said. And if we circle back quickly on a couple of things you mentioned there around exercise and sleep, can you can you walk us through a little bit of what the you know where the data is at in terms of low mood and and you know whether it's lack of fitness and lack of sleep and how these things can mount up and impact them? Things like low yeah. mood and depression. So for sure, the data is pretty clear in terms of like mental health vital signs sleep is up there sleep and nutrition are probably Mm -hmm. the two most modifiable exercise is equally important but you know if i had to pick two of the three um easier places to start right yeah yeah i mean ideally we want people engaged in all three how can you have good sleep hygiene and and beyond the basics we have a new mental fitness course that we've been working on where we really try and get into some of the new science of sleep Cause you know, so often people are like, yeah, I sleep eight hours. And then, you know, it's like, mm, you talk you to really? I mean, I, I've interviewed like that, I mean, like you, hundreds of people, thousands of people about their sleep. And especially if you've spent any time monitoring your sleep or looking at sleep data of other people, it, it's really, um, it's a, it's an epidemic right now in terms of people not valuing sleep, people not understanding sleep is where our brain really goes into kind of a wash and clean cycle. Mm. Um, that's really critical. Uh, and requires us going through our very sleep cycles. All kinds of stuff we use to sleep messes up our sleep cycles from sleep meds to CBD to um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the, the CBD, which by the way, in the research is a, a CBD is a wakefulness molecule. Like that's how the researchers talk about it. It yeah. actually doesn't actually promote sleep, but uh, don't mind science. So there, <laughs> there's uh, yeah. So, but, but things like that, alcohol, sleep meds, CBD, which melatonin even just shift our sleep cycle and and so the idea is really can we work with people to help get back onto a really natural sleep cycle by getting the body and mind tired via exercise and having meaningful experiences and then really controlling light lots of early morning light and then really sun goes down lights go off so yeah and just uh the last couple of questions here for you. Oh, wait, we said exercise. We just say the exercise. So about ten <laughs> percent yeah. of worldwide depression would yeah. be totally prevented if every adult in the world exercised between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and fifty minutes a week. Yeah. So that's like, yeah, tens of millions of people who. That's what the researchers estimate. I, I think anybody who struggled with their mental health knows that exercise gets really hard, and exercise is always really good that when you're struggling with depression and you don't have energy, if you can get out and, and work out a little bit, you feel a little better. Even if you're exhausted, when you have anxiety, nothing helps you with anxiety more than exercise. So. Yeah. It's always that tough loop, isn't it? Of like people are working hard, they're working longer hours. Now they don't sleep as much. Now they don't have time to exercise and now they don't eat as well. This whole, you know, downward spiral starts to happen. And just on that note around, you know, alcohol, 
obviously or caffeine even i mean people you know busy running on all cylinders and it's like all right let's take the edge off with a couple glasses of wine and you know to your point of wearing the sleep monitor we can see how that affects the heart rate overnight oh you see it right i mean uh, this is oh, it's grape juice not exactly the health <laughs> but you'll see it you know if i have a couple yeah. of glasses or whatever you go to bed my heart rate is like high 70s sometimes low 80s but usually high 70s and it takes all night to get down to like 45 or 50 55 mm. If I don't have anything to drink, I go to bed and my heart rate drops to 50. And you just think about that night after night where people, you know, are chronically having a couple glasses of wine because that's the recommended healthy amount. And mm. it's, you know, not, I don't, I'm not a teetotaler. There's no, I don't have an issue with people having a drink every now and then. I just think that we, you know, just like I had my little rant about modern masculinity, I think we're, we're also in a culture just there's a lot of, um, promotion of drinking in a way that inner you know when you think about top headwinds to low mood it, it's definitely going to be some of these sedentary lifestyle and dietary factors but definitely alcohol consumption is way way up there yeah i know for sure and uh on the supplement front here wrapping things up you know do supplements are, is there anything out there that might move the needle for folks or is it really you know obviously the pillars being you know nutrition and, and exercise and these lifestyle factors of course, on top of actual strategies that someone like yourself might use with a with a patient. But what about on the supplement front? Is there anything that's actually moving the needle these days? There's a little bit of data. I mean, uh, on the supplement front, in terms of natural antidepressants, there there aren't a lot. I mean, and usually, I think what happens is people kind of avoid treatment and they come in often taking like four or five. They're taking magnesium <laughs> and St. John's Ford and rhodiola and some mix of adaptogens and reishi mushrooms, and you know, which is those are all things that have some data behind them. Um, I would say what stands out in the data probably most recently is um, around, uh, uh, well, I guess it's not a supplement, but certainly around the psychedelics, uh, certainly two interesting studies in psilocybin. Yeah. I think the data around St. John's wort, I'm a fan of magnesium and more of that in people's diets. And sometimes, you know, there, there is some data around supplementing that and, and getting better outcomes with depression. And then there are a few in terms of, Know, calming people down with a little bit of data. Uh, again, I don't mean to sound anti-CBD. I just think it's one of those things where there's really no data. Hype, the hype's really high, and the, the hype's really the, great. And 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 the doses were like to get an and to get uh, therapeutic dose cost you a thousand bucks. We were talking about like like six hundred milligrams in the study, or there was a study of uh, improving mood and affective expression in patients with schizophrenia, and I think it was like twelve hundred milligrams a day of CBD. Wow. So and and also again, just real no real data. It helps with anxiety. Um, but all, all that said, you know, um, something I've seen lots of people experiment with and have mm. good results with in terms of feeling it helps their sleep, feeling it helps them be calm, and so. No, I would just, I, I generally tell people to work in conjunction with a professional because it happens a lot where someone will start something, whether it's St. John's Wort, Zoloft, psychotherapy, and then a month later, they're like, yeah, I don't know if it's working. And you're sitting there like, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, really? <laughs> like, your mood's better. You're having a good time in your relationship. You're smiling, yeah. like you're cracking me up. You're in such a good mood. Yeah. And, you know, but it, it's hard I mean, for I'm them to see little, it. Some... Yeah, I'm being a little silly, but sometimes mm. the, the it's not so apparent to us how mm -hmm. uh, something is affecting us. And so that's where I think um, I'm a big believer in trials, right? If somebody says, what do you think about this? I'm like, let's try it. Let's try it for four or five weeks. Let's try and get a good accounting of what we're looking for to change and whether it changed or not. Mm -hmm. Terrific. Well, listen, uh, I won't uh, hold you here much longer. Dr. Drew, last question for you is, you know, if you had to give people, you know, 
one tip again this this sort of midlife busy sleep deprived around supporting mental health you know what would that uh, what would that tip be Well, I would say for all my middle age kin out there and folks, I, I would say that the parts that have most been most important in terms of having a good time in middle life, I think that there's the processing of trauma that oftentimes doesn't happen as we're working hard to sort of achieve things and establish relationships and establish family and partnership and professional identity and all that. So I think for the 40s, there's a lot of, uh, of let's say, turbulent, turbulent emotional stuff. It gets framed for us as either you're going to have a midlife crisis, mm -hmm. right? Or um, I'm not sure what the other options are. <laughs> and, I, and I think there's a lot of way to not have a midlife crisis is if we really understand that, 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 that our development doesn't stop in adolescence. And there is this, I think, very intensive period as parents are getting older as kids are young and then rapidly getting older and as career hits a kind of stride in the forties where, um, yeah, I guess it's a strange answer. I'm supposed to say brain food, sorry. Yeah, eat more brain food. The one thing I want you all to do, I want you yeah. to feed your mental health and eat, eat more, more oysters and it'll all be eat better. More fish and oysters, more, I say seafood greens, nuts and beans and a little dark chocolate. But nice. I, what pops into my mind besides, you know, plug, plugging the book is reminding you know, people to deal with, uh, with trauma. And, and that doesn't have to be our kind of the, the, you know, oftentimes when I say trauma, people are thinking about assault, um, rape, uh, sexual abuse. And certainly those are horrible traumas. My, my, my definition of trauma expands a little bit that if you've been bullied, if you've um, been the subject of uh, um, uh, racial violence of any type, if you've been discriminated against, if you have um, been under the thumb of someone, you know, it doesn't have to be a racial thing, someone who is a, you know, somewhat sociopathic and treated you poorly. You know, not, not that we're all victims and that we've all had trauma, but that I find so often with people, there's some other moment or sequence of events or relationships that's really, really traumatic to them it mm. really kind of shakes their foundation that they haven't worked through or talked about. And it ends up, I think, in middle life playing out for a lot of folks. So that would be, besides the brain, that's if you want my besides, late night. I like that. I got both care. levels there. That was, that was tremendous. Listen, Drew, I appreciate you carving out the time. Uh, the book is tremendous. So I definitely encourage everyone to pick that up and we'll have the links in the, in the show notes as well. You know, where's the best place for people to stay connected with you and keep up with your uh, fantastic work? Uh, on Instagram, everybody should I, I try to post if you want to see my pretty horse and watch me flail with my own mental health and fitness. Um, but um, my website, DrewRemseyMD.com, I've got some great free downloads in terms of brain food on a budget or some of my other surprising mental health foods and some recipes. So please check those out and, and please do stay in touch. If I, I really, my goal is to help people feel really empowered in terms of caring for the mental health and continuing this conversation, not just around food, but around our overall mental fitness. So I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all and to speak with you. And, uh, and we'll, uh, yeah, I'll look forward to, you've asked some really great questions about performance. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to come back on and ask you some questions. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, until next time, I appreciate it, bud. All right. Take care. Have a good night. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can watch the full video interview or short clips over on YouTube at Performance Nutrition Podcast. If you enjoyed the content, please head over to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform, subscribe, 
and leave us a comment in the reviews. It's a big, big help to the show. Shout out to everyone. My new book, Peak 40, which was released last month. We've already hit bestseller in five different categories. So massive, massive thank you to everyone. And if you're a coach out there, practitioner looking for some simple heuristics and solutions to manage the madness and hecticness of midlife, then be sure to check that out. And you can also listen to the new short form podcast, the Peak 40 Podcast. Awesome. Have a fantastic week. Any questions or comments, reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs, Twitter, Instagram. Happy to answer those questions. Take care. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.